Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. It is astonishing how a pea-sized gland in one's neck could be so troublesome. Dr. Jesse Pasternak is an endocrine surgeon at Toronto General Hospital. In this episode, we delve into the workup of hyperparathyroidism, Dr. Pasternak's approach to parathyroid surgery, as well as his thoughts on the introduction of new surgical techniques. Well, welcome, Dr. Pasternak, to Cold Steel. Uh, thank you so much for carving out time in your in your super busy schedule. Uh, all the amazing things that you do, we we really, truly, and deeply appreciate having you on. I, I was wondering if you could just briefly describe for a few listeners who maybe don't know you as well as we do yet where you grew up, uh, what that was like, and then what your surgical and medical training pathway looked like. So first of all, I want to thank you both uh, for having me on. It's really, uh, you know, I, I didn't know much about the podcast until relatively recently. And then when I first, when I found out about it, I started listening to it and I, um, I thought, I thought this was like, you know, what is needed in Canadian, even, you know, international surgery. Um, a lot of my mentors uh, have been on it and, uh, and it's just an honor to kind of join them in, in this podcast. So I really appreciate you having me on, first of all. Um, Second, second thing, so, uh, so in terms of my kind of journey through medicine, uh, I grew up, uh, you know, in, in uh, the suburbs of Toronto, and um, my, uh, my parents, uh, I, uh, neither of them were physicians, uh, neither of them actually went to university, uh, and um, my older brother uh, was my first uh, experience with somebody who, uh, who went to university, and um, he uh, he ended up uh, being a uh, um, a personal trainer to uh, in and lives in LA now, and uh, and myself I decided to kind of pursue the medical route because I really wanted to you know work with people and and help people um, uh, when my uh, my family had uh, had some um, uh, experience with the diabetes so I wanted to be an endocrinologist actually when I first uh, went into medical school. Uh, and uh, and I went in, I went through my um, uh, my undergraduate degree. I went to McGill um, uh, for uh, uh, anatomy and cell biology, uh, and I also took a, a substantial course load in uh, humanities, including um, um, you know religion and uh, and um, economics and international relations and all sorts of hodgepodge and stuff. And then I uh, I ended up going to McMaster for medical school um, and. Uh, when I was there, I kind of really was keen on being an endocrinologist. So I spent a lot of time with endocrinologists. Uh, I spent, um, you know, I go to like the, I try to do research in endocrinology. I spent time uh, doing genetics uh, of, of uh, diabetes uh, work. Um, and, uh, and then that kind of led me to deciding whether I want to be an, uh, an endocrinologist, which would be internal medicine. 
And, um, and then I kind of uh, had a couple experiences in surgery and that led me to a, uh, to an elective actually I took, uh, at UBC, uh, with, um, uh, with, uh, with the general surgery, uh, people out there. And, uh, I met a, I met a chief resident at the time, a name, Adrian Melk, who many of you may know, uh, who's uh, now an endocrine surgeon, uh, in, um, uh, in Vancouver. And she, uh, she actually told me that, uh, you know, you, you sound like you're really interested in endocrinology. I said, yeah, and I really wanted to be an endocrinologist, but I kind of really, you know, got, got uh, souped up by the surgical side. And she said, there's something called endocrine surgery, and I'm doing a fellowship in that uh, coming up. And I said, oh, my gosh, that's insane. So I started looking into it a little bit more, and I found out that there's actually something called endocrine surgery across Canada. And there are giants in endocrine surgery across Canada, including even uh, at the University, uh, University of, uh, of Calgary. Janice Pasika is one of my mentors and uh, is a giant, in it, and you've had her on your show. And, you know, she's really uh, something, a force in, in, uh, in surgery, but also specifically in international endocrine surgery. And if you mention her name in any circles around the entire world, uh, not only do they have they heard of her, but they know her very well. So, so you know, I didn't know that this existed across Canada until until I did that elective. And once I did that, I started doing um, my research. And when I started my general surgery residency, I uh, I started getting into the uh, the research and the kind of the, the real clinical uh, side of endocrine surgery. Uh, and uh, and then did a fellowship um, in San Francisco with Orlo Clark, who essentially started uh, uh, him uh, and, um, uh, and Norm Thompson, uh, who Dr. Pasika did her fellowship with in, uh, in Michigan, them two started the, uh, the endocrine surgery um, kind of specialty uh, in the, uh, the mid 20th century. Uh, and, um, and so that uh, her, him, uh, Dr. Clark and, and uh, Quan Du, who was also a big name and who's, who still is also a big name in surgery, uh, was one of the first people to popularize the laparoscopic adrenalectomy, uh, and uh, and kind of you know being exposed to some of these these giants in, in endocrine surgery made me think you know this is something that you know we can we can actually expand even further across Canada, uh, and uh, and kind of get coming back and being recruited back to Toronto is really a, an awesome um, an awesome uh, opportunity to to you know uh, start uh, start an academic career in endocrine surgery and that's kind of where I am now. I wanted to ask you about uh, your work around decision making for low risk thyroid nodules. I, I love the stuff that you've worked on um, in terms of like trying to figure out what the best treatment uh, options might be for patients faced with this situation. You know, we, we of course interviewed Dr. Erbach uh, about a study that he did and looking at uh, that I think you were also involved with looking at the language that you use around thyroid nodules and then how that impacts uh, patient decision making. What about this topic uh, interests you so much? Um, that's a, you know, this topic is, is something that, you know, we could talk about for hours. And I think the, the reason is because, uh, you know, the, the jury is still out on the, um, uh, the way that thyroid cancer, because, uh, you know, people do, people evaluate thyroid nodules for the risk of thyroid cancer. The people in the general public, you know, when they think of cancer, they think of something that's, you know, you need to treat aggressively. You need to make sure that, you know, you don't leave any cells behind. You have to make sure that you, if you have a second or multimodal uh, therapeutic option, you use those things. And I think those, uh, that idea of treatment of cancer really is not applicable to most, uh, most majority of thyroid, uh, thyroid cancers. And so I think the, uh, I realized that, you know, going through general surgery residency, we were exposed to so many different types of cancers uh, and so many different types of aggressive cancers in general surgery. 
Um, in uh, in uh, thyroid uh, thyroid cancer, it's it's a much different story. And and I think the the um, the the issue stems from uh, you know even up until about ten or fifteen years ago, there was many different physicians. Uh, one notable one is uh, a guy named uh, Dr. Mazaferi who published multiple papers. Uh, saying basically we need to stamp out thyroid cancer when we find it. We need to treat it with, you know, total thyroidectomy. We need to treat it with radioactive iodine. Uh, we need to treat it with thyroid suppression. I call it the triple three. Uh, and and uh, in fact, the evidence does not show that when you look at it, um, uh, when you look at the large studies that we, ha that we have now. And one, one specific example of this, and I always say this in my talks, are, is that, you know, we have a study that looked at, uh, you know, 50,000 patients in a large American database. And it showed that if you did a total thyroidectomy on them versus a lobectomy on them, we're taking out half the thyroid, you actually had a worse outcome if you did a lobectomy. Um, and then uh, another, uh, another group uh, led by Julianne Sosa, who is uh, now the, the chair of surgery at UCSF and uh, very um, a big force in endocrine surgery. She's an endocrine surgeon and, and a surgical oncologist. She actually reviewed, and she's also an epidemiologist. She reviewed those data uh, a few years later, um, most of the same similar data with uh, with a uh, epidemiologic endocrine surgical bent to it, and and she found the exact opposite result. And in fact, you know, lobectomy and total thyroidectomy have the exact same outcome. And so, uh, so, um, so I think the idea behind uh, you know, treating thyroid cancer is, is, and that applies to thyroid nodules, is really based on the fact that we need to kind of move away from the previous thoughts of how to treat thyroid cancer in the context of treating other cancers. Um, and specifically regard to, regarding thyroid nodules, we worry about thyroid nodules so much because of the risk of thyroid cancer because we think we need to treat thyroid cancer aggressively. And if you think about thyroid nodules and the detection of thyroid nodules, if I did a thyroid ultrasound on every single person walking down the streets of downtown Toronto or anywhere in the world, I'd have about a 50% um, likelihood of finding a thyroid nodule in you. And so if we treated every thyroid nodule aggressively and we worried people about thyroid nodule, we would have no ability to treat anybody else in our health system. And we'd also create a, a quality of life of everybody that had a thyroid nodule, which is quite uh, concerning. People would be worried about this all the time. So, so I think the ideas behind what thyroid nodules are, what thyroid cancers are, uh, really needs to shift. And, and it's not necessarily about the evidence because we have a lot of evidence. It's about the changing the, the, um, the attitudes towards, uh, towards what is a thyroid nodule and what is a thyroid cancer. And I think those are slowly changing. One example of this, uh, and I'll just briefly just say this example is that uh, we're starting active surveillance trials in Toronto up to two centimeter thyroid cancers that are diagnosed as thyroid cancers. We, we, we don't actually operate on them. And the treatment is to monitor them. And this is based on large data sets from Japan showing that decades of monitoring small thyroid cancers produces uh, patients that don't need surgery. In fact, less than 5% of those patients actually have any sign of metastatic disease. And if they do have metastatic disease, you can just treat those with the usual uh, surgical management and they do fine. So, so we, we, up to two centimeters, we, we, uh, we monitor uh, and, um, and you know, the initially when we started this trial, people were like gasped, like how could you do something like this? Uh, and then over the course of the last couple of years, we have slowly started to change the hearts and minds of the referring docs and uh, and the other uh, you know stakeholders in the in the uh, in the thyroid uh, thyroidology world. And 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 in in the region at least where I work, you know, it's it's mostly accepted. You should see like the the kind of hate mail that I would get from publishing some of this stuff. You know, in CMAJ, I published a paper about de-escalation of thyroid cancer care. 
which I got hate mail. You know, I give talks at the endocrinology societies and I get hate mail about that. Uh, I hate uh, and people would like stand up in the podium and, and on the podium and say, you know, how could you how could you advocate for this? And 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 I think we, as long as we, we use the evidence uh, and as long as we can, you know, at least get the people who are treating these patients on board with the evidence, um, we'll, we'll be able to treat uh, treat treat the cancer adequately. One of the um, uh, thyroid surgeons at Morrison Kettering, um, um, Ashuk Shaha, used to say, that, you know, the punishment must fit the, fit the crime. And so we shouldn't be doing such big, uh, big treatment uh, uh, modalities for thyroid cancer when it's not actually going to hurt you or kill you throughout your life. It's such a remarkable time to be a surgeon. Like there's so much evolution in so many different fields, uh, you know, from, from thyroid cancer to breast cancer to rectal cancer. Like it really is just a remarkable time uh, mm. to be a, be a surgeon. Like it, it, it's fascinating. I think it is only fitting that we use your expertise to talk a little bit about parathyroids and uh, and I'll just uh, plug you again that you gave a great talk for us um, uh, for the for, so every year the the graduating re chief residents in Canada go to Toronto um, for a review course prior to our Royal College exam which is which is equivalent to the board exams in in the U.S. And you gave a great talk for us on, on thyroid cancer. So I'm hoping to leverage your expertise again <laughs> today on the podcast to, to kind of give us a crash course on, on parathyroid disease. So um, let's just talk a little bit about some basic calcium phosphate uh, PTH metabolism. You know, uh, for the junior resident, can you, can you break down a little bit about uh, how does calcium phosphate uh, get um, handled in the body and, and where does PTH fit into that? So, uh, so I think uh, the you know if you're gonna um, if you're gonna be writing uh, any of your exams on uh, in general surgery or even in uh, in on if you have any parathyroid uh, issues uh, you know things you got to learn about I think the the best thing to kind of start uh, from is you know from the beginning and and the fact is that you know the history of parathyroid disease parathyroid disease. Um, you know, has been longstanding. And, uh, and obviously, as, as, as many of you know, the, the first parathyroidectomy was done, you know, in the 19th century. Uh, uh, and uh, it was done by a guy named, uh, by, by, by a guy uh, on a guy named Charles Martel, who was a captain in the Navy in the US. And he, uh, he had parathyroid disease. And there's nice, some nice pictures uh, in the, um, uh, in the literature uh, of him uh, before he was uh, stricken with the parathyroid disease and then after. And in fact, he, um, uh, he underwent uh, multiple parathyroid surgeries by multiple surgeons at large reputable centers in the U.S. Uh, and um, uh, and he had uh, uh, and they knew that his calcium was high uh, because he had the end stage calcium uh, issues. And uh, we always talk about you know the the, the medical students always talk about like bones, groans, uh, moans, psychiatric overtones. But I think that the key parts to parathyroid disease when we when we're treating it today. Uh, because uh, we don't really uh, view those manifestations anymore. The main things we talk about uh, is uh, high calcium causing um, uh, kidney stones and causing osteoporosis. And those are the two main symptoms of, of parathyroid disease. From a biochemical standpoint, um, you know, calcium has has uh, uh, since the 1970s we've had a very we have had a very high throughput, uh, easy to measure calcium. Uh, there was a there was a calcium uh, test that was developed in the 70s. Uh, and, uh, and since then, there's been widespread use of calcium. So calcium is actually the first thing to be seen to be elevated. And it's often seen in an asymptomatic uh, patient, um, especially in North America. Uh, so, so calcium, when, when your calcium is elevated, I think that's when you have to try to think about what, uh, what's happening with this patient. 
And as many of you know, the first, the most common reason for an outpatient to have elevated calcium is primary hyperparathyroidism. Now, the phosphate is something uh, is something I could talk about for a long time, but I think the, the take-home points about phosphate is that in, in secondary disease, it's much more important, and those are patients with kidney disease. Uh, in primary disease, um, you know, it, it is often low, and that's related to the, to the kidneys as well. Um, and, uh, and Dr. Pasik always says, you know, it's a poor person's uh, PTH, you know, you see a low phosphate and high calcium, you know, the patient has primary hyperparathyroidism. Uh, that's sometimes uh, the case. Sometimes you don't actually have lo very low phosphate. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, nowadays, uh, as long as your calcium is elevated and the PTH is also uh, elevated, um, that is a clear diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism. Um, unless we talk about vitamin D. And I think vitamin D is actually more important to talk about uh, in the diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism than phosphate. Um, uh, uh, so I think the, the key diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism is uh, calcium being high uh, or high normal, um, the, the PTH being high or high normal, and the vitamin D being normal. Because as you know, uh, vitamin D is, is highly deficient in our population, specifically in Canada. And so vitamin D that's very low uh, can actually cause uh, the PTH to be high. And so if you have a, a relatively normal or high uh, or, or a relatively normal calcium or high normal calcium, but your PTH is very, very, very high, um, then it could be related to vitamin D. And if you give vitamin D supplementation, uh, the PTH and calcium uh, uh, stay normal. So, so I think vitamin D, calcium, and PTH are the most important uh, biochemical uh, factors to diagnose primary hyperparathyroidism. So let's say you're seeing a patient who's been referred to you because they have a high calcium and high PTH. How do you uh, approach that patient from a, from a history and physical perspective? So the main um, the main things about uh, about uh, parathyroid disease is that you have to understand uh, you have to uh, have a good approach to these patients in a very stepwise fashion, and I think that's where the problem lies in the uh, in the surgical and medical community is that we we jump steps and I so and so if you if I think that I think that if you if you if you review a parathyroid patient from a stepwise fashion uh, you'll really get it every single time so the first you have to there's three questions that I that I usually ask uh, and this came uh, from Dr. Kwan Du who's one of my mentors in San Francisco and he said the first question you need to ask is do they have the disease and so so you you review the calcium you review the PTH you review the vitamin D if those things line up uh, then you have primary hyperparathyroidism. The second question, then if they don't have that question, you can't move to the second question. And that's a key point. A lot of people move to the second and third questions, which I'll tell you about in a second, without actually making the diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism. And unless you make that diagnosis, you can't move on. So let's say we've made that diagnosis. The second question is, should they have an operation? And, uh, and having an operation depends on two factors. The first is if they have symptoms. And the symptoms that we know about these days are, are, are um, uh, as I mentioned, kidney stones and osteoporosis. So if the patient has kidney stones uh, or any um, ultrasound findings of kidney stones, even asymptomatic kidney stones, or if they have osteoporosis uh, done by DEXA scan, which is a bone mineral density scan, then they, des then they deserve an operation. The people that don't uh, meet those two criteria still can get an operation if they meet the asymptomatic guideline criteria. And there's a, there's a host of criteria and those, uh, revolve, I, I won't kind of go through them, but they revolve around whether the patient's young, uh, whether the patient has very, very high levels of calcium or whether the patient has any renal disease. And so if you think about 
the long-term complications of parathyroid disease, it makes sense, right? You don't want somebody that has already starting renal disease to have even worse renal disease. And renal disease uh, happens because of high calcium over long periods of time. Um, you don't want them to have very, very high levels of calcium because then they can have uh, uh, inpatient stays related to the elevated calcium. And we can talk about, you know, it's, uh, and you, you probably have, have, uh, have uh, reviewed, you know, if anyone that's studied for any, uh, any exam reviewed how to, how to manage elevated calcium in one of them, and many of them require inpatient stays. So you don't want to have very high levels of calcium, which is also dangerous to the end organs as well. Uh, and you don't want somebody that's very young because the younger they are, the longer they'll live with the parathyroid disease. So, so I think uh, the asymptomatic patients as well as the symptomatic patients deserve an operation. Now, the, 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 the issue I said before, you can't move on to the next step without having checkbox that question applies a lot here as well. People move on without actually making uh, making a clear understand having a clear understanding of whether the patient needs an operation. So if you do check this box and say the patient needs the operation, then you can move on to the third question. The third question is how to do the operation, and this is where all the scans come in. So you could see that the first and second question have no no um, uh, no connection to scans, yet a lot of patients are referred without fully being worked up and already have scans in place. And sometimes they're not referred because the scans are negative. Again, not, uh, not um, following the three steps in sequential order. Okay, so the first step is, do they have the disease? Second step is, should they have the operation? And the third step is how to do the operation. And how did the operation is variable depending on what kind of, uh, you know, across the world, depending on what kind of resources available you have. Uh, from my, in my practice, I do two uh, imaging studies to localize disease. Uh, and those imaging studies that I do personally are my own ultrasound. So I do a surgeon perform ultrasound and I do ultrasound on every thyroid and parathyroid patient that I, that I see in my clinic. Um, and I, um, I, I localize uh, the disease, especially parathyroid disease, very, fairly, uh, relatively easily. Uh, and, uh, and then I do a, usually a functional scan, like a Sestamibi scan. I've also done a bunch of studies on other types of functional imaging like PET-MRs using fluorocholine and those types of things. But, but I think from my perspective, uh, the easiest scan to get is a, is a Sestamibi scan, uh, which is actually quite a poor scan, but it's the best functional scan we have available in my region. So that's what we, that's what we use. Some people use CT scans, um, which is not technically a functional, functional scan, uh, but a CT scan, they call it a 4D CT scan that's often used, but, but I, don't, I don't personally use that in my practice on a regular basis. Um, and so once I localize, or if I can localize a lesion, then I'll do a minimally invasive focused parathyroidectomy. And uh, minimally invasive parathyroidectomy is a very uh, fluid word. Um, a lot of different people use it for many different reasons. Um, uh, and I won't go into that specifically, but I what I will say is that uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not okay to localize a lesion, take someone to the operating room, take that lesion out and close them up and, and send them home. Because uh, in my opinion, in, if you do that, uh, not, not my opinion, but in, in the data, if you do that, you have between a 5 and 10, up to 15% chance of persistence slash recurrence rate. And that's too high for me. So what I do is I do an intraoperative PTH value where I check the levels of PTH while the patient's sleeping. And if the PTH levels go down adequately, and we have algorithms to decide if it's adequate, uh, then the patient's cured and the recurrence slash persistent rate is probably around 1% or less. Uh, if, I, if the levels don't go down, 
that's when you convert to the four gland exploration. And I can do a four gland exploration, exploration fairly quickly. Uh, and, and I would just look at all the four glands, make sure uh, they're, they're all, you know, look at which ones are big, which ones are small. And usually if the PTH hasn't gone down, they have multiple, uh, multiple either multiple adenomas or, or hyperplasia. Uh, and we can, that's a long conversation as well as what, what, is, what is hyperplasia, what is multiple adenomas. But, but I think a four gland exploration is, is, a, is, a, um, is necessary if your PTH go, doesn't go down. Now, if you don't have PTH available in your center, you can still do parathyroid uh, surgery for sure. But I think in that situation, it's really incumbent to understand what your recurrence slash persistent rates are going to be if you only do a single gland excision or a unilateral excision where you look at two, two lesions on that side or a four gland exploration where you look at all four glands. And I think that needs to be discussed with the referring docs, with the patient, and understand your rates yourself of what your persistent recurrence rates are. You know, I think where people get a really confused sometimes is even at that first stage, like you talked about, right? Making making the diagnosis of whether they have the disease. Can you just uh, explain for our listeners, what's the difference between primary, secondary, and tertiary hyperparathyroidism? And how do you uh, differentiate those things uh, on uh, laboratory examinations? Okay. I'll make it, uh, it's basically a two, a two second, uh, a two second discussion. Primary disease are patients that have uh, elevated calcium in the setting of elevated PTH or high normal calcium in the setting of elevated, elevated PTH or, you know, uh, elevated calcium in the setting of high normal PTH with all with normal vitamin D. Those are all, all forms of primary hyperparathyroidism. None of those patients have renal disease uh, causing their primary causing their parathyroid disease. So primary hyperparathyroidism is when the parathyroids themselves independently are causing the problem. So that's fairly easy. And you can recognize that fairly easily uh, because the patient's either not on dialysis or has never had a renal transplant. So if the patient has had is on dialysis or has a renal transplant, then those patients are either secondary or tertiary. So that's a really easy way to kind of uh, diagnose it. Uh, I'll go even further and say a patient that's on dialysis uh, that's not had renal transplant has secondary hyperparathyroidism. And almost every patient that's on, a di on dialysis will have secondary hyperparathyroidism. The rates are, you know, 75 to 80% have substantial secondary hyperparathyroidism on longstanding dialysis. So I think secondary disease, dialysis, and then once patients get a transplant, after the trans, that's how this is how I I I um I a lot some people have different uh, ways of um of classifying them, but from my perspective, once a patient has a transplant, that's when they can have tertiary disease, and tertiary disease usually comes with elevated calcium. On the other hand, we think about patients with secondary disease that are on dialysis; they always have low calcium because the the vitamin D levels are low; they're not able to simplistically they're not able not able to absorb calcium and so the the calcium levels low and therefore the pth levels go high to try to normalize that calcium so it's a pretty uh, a pretty simplistic thing primary disease when the when the parathyroids cause it themselves secondary disease when you have long-standing dialysis and you have stimulation of a parathyroid disease because you have low calcium and tertiary disease when you have a kidney transplant and long-standing secondary disease from being on dialysis, now you have a kidney transplant, and those parathyroid glands have been working so hard for so long, they can't go back to normal, and they, they become autonomous and start making elevated calcium. 
yeah I, I think that's a very easy and uh and and not hard way to think about uh <laughs> about those three things and, and that uh, i wish someone had told me that uh you know five years ago um <laughs> but uh i just wanted to go back once again just to the diagnosis pr- perspective like if you ever w- want to uh you know, kill an afternoon and you can start looking up uh, the differential diagnosis for hypercalcemia on up to date. Um, uh, how do you differentiate, you know, they, they always talk about this familial um, syndromes like hypocalceric, hypercalcemic, all, all those kinds of things. Like what are, are there any other investigations? Like let's say you have someone who has uh, looks like that primary hyperparathyroidism. How do you distinguish between um, or rule out those things that, that might mislead you? So um, so the one thing, one test that we usually order for um, uh, for in primary disease, um, and you talk, you talk about familial hypocalcemia, when the, cal- when the urine calcium is very low, hypercalcemia and the blood calcium is high, that's a familial disease uh, uh, affecting the CASA receptor, which is in the kidney, and that's the calcium sensing receptor. And in that disease, the, the body actually pulls the calcium in from the, from the kidney, uh, and so the urine calcium is low. Now, that, that disease is not, uh, is not treatable with surgery, and so the way to rule that out is to make sure that the urine calcium is not very low. Um, and, and so that's one kind of uh, test, an adjunct test that we do. The, the, it's very, very rare to have that problem. Um, and so some, uh, some parathyroid surgeons usual practice to do it for every patient, some parathyroid, parathyroid surgeons is not, and they basically just take that risk. Um, uh, but, uh, but that's, that's one way to kind of rule out, uh, familial hypocalciuria, hypercalcemia. Um, the other uh, genetic syndromes are still primary hyperparathyroidism, like MEN2, MEN1. These are still primary disease because the gland is itself uh, the, the primary uh, aspect of the disease itself. The gland is causing the problem. So, so the other diseases uh, are, are, are all still a form of primary hyperparathyroidism. But when you talk about familial disease, you talk about a higher propensity, in my opinion, to multi-gland disease. And that's what I see uh, a lot because I do a lot of parathyroid surgery. I see uh, many of the patients that have a family history. So if you take a family history, uh, of, uh, of parathyroid disease when you uh, speak to patients, um, then they'll, and they tell you, oh, my mom had parathyroid disease or my sister had parathyroid disease. That sets off kind of the, the, the alarm bells in your mind to say, oh, this may be a familial disease. Um, and, uh, and as long as their, their sister or their mom didn't have a pheochromocytoma, uh, you can probably be sure that it's not MEN2, it's probably MEN1. And MEN1 disease uh, is actually uh, somewhat quite common in some areas, in, even in Canada and, and in some areas in the US. And MEN1 disease is associated with multi-gland disease. So that's why when I see somebody that has mild hyperparathyroidism in the sense of low, uh, low levels of calcium, they're still elevated or high normal, but low levels of calcium, if they're young, if they have fam- family history, uh, then that sets off alarm, alarm bells uh, for multi-gland disease and or MEN1. And those, those, are, uh, those are patients that I would do further testing, either uh, genetic testing for MEN1 uh, or, uh, or other uh, uh, associated syndrome, um, uh, syndrome testing like uh, pituitary workup and stuff like that, as, as, you, as, you, know, as you remember, uh, MEN1, pituitary disease, parathyroid disease, and pancreas disease, <laughs> the three Ps. The three Ps. <laughs> when do you start worrying about... Uh, things like parathyroid carcinoma preoperatively is there any anything that will kind of tip you off 
uh, preoperatively that would start you down that uh, pathway? Yeah, so a lot of people will say if their calcium is really high, their PTH is really high, then they have a, uh, a, they have a suspicion of parathyroid carcinoma. In fact, if your calcium is very, very high and your parathyroid hormone is very, very high, you still likely don't have uh, parathyroid carcinoma. Uh, I, my, some of my senior colleagues, uh, you know, Lauren Rothstein is my senior partner. Uh, he's been doing this for decades. Uh, he's probably had a less than a handful of parathyroid carcinomas uh, in his entire career. So parathyroid carcinoma, and he's, he's a subspecialty parathyroid surgeon. So, so uh, parathyroid carcinoma is very, very uncommon. Uh, and it's something that we sometimes recognize intraoperatively. Uh, we see that the parathyroid uh, lesion is uh, almost invading, or uh, there seems to be, uh, you know, a very fibrotic reaction around around the parathyroid uh, uh, lesion. Um, and and I think that those those are the uh, those are the more more telltale signs. Ultimately, uh, you know, the the parathyroid carcinoma. Uh, is um, is very, very uncommon. And I'm doing some studies now to look at some of the genetics of it. So if we can actually predict it, because even now, you know, we have parafibromin staining, which sometimes helps us uh, decide if it's parathyroid carcinoma. But even now, it's still somewhat ambiguous whether the parathyroid carcinoma is in fact a parathyroid carcinoma or if it's an atypical parathyroid neoplasm. Um, and so these are these are kind of a continuum of, of atypical parathyroid uh, disease. Um, uh, you know, that from the get-go. But I think if you have a very elevated PTH and a very elevated calcium, those are, are kind of set you off to be concerned. But I think it's still very likely that those patients still have benign disease. All right. So um, I think it's time to kind of get us close to the operating room here. But before we dive into how you kind of approach the parathyroid operation, can you talk a little bit about the anatomy of the parathyroid glands? Because obviously I think that's the, that's the key in, in terms of, uh, of doing a, a parathyroid, good parathyroid surgery. Um, tell us a little bit about the anatomy of the parathyroid gland and, and sort of the, the landmarks that you're looking for and thinking about when doing the operation. Yeah, so that's, um, that's something that I get asked a lot, actually. And I think, you know, we, when I was even a medical student resident, I was kind of trying to understand the parathyroid glands in the context of the schematic diagrams on the, um, on the textbooks. And it's, it's really hard to kind of understand them because they're very small. They're almost impossible to, to see. Uh, I remember being in the operating room many times with uh, my mentors and they're like, oh, here's the parathyroid. I'm like, yeah, 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 that, that looks like it. And I had no idea what they were looking at, zero idea. So, so that's a completely normal experience to have. If for any of the residents that are listening, that's a completely normal experience to have. Uh, you know, it's like a slightly different tan color than the fat around it. Again, uh, you you uh, almost will never see it unless you see a lot of them, and that's that's what makes a parathyroid surgeon uh, a parathyroid surgeon. Um, just as a, as an aside, my one of my mentors, uh, Ted Young uh, at at McMaster, who actually has since retired. Um, he said the best localizing study for parathyroid disease is to localize a good parathyroid surgeon. So I think uh, that that really tells uh, tells tells the tells the uh, the idea that you know you, it's very hard to to recognize parathyroid uh, parathyroids unless you have a good understanding of the anatomy and where you're going to find them, and you almost don't even need to see them; you just know where they're going to be. So, in terms of where the anatomy side of of parathyroid uh, parathyroids are. Uh, I think uh, the key really is to uh, be able to uh, understand the thyroid and understand uh, where, uh, where in relationship to the thyroid you're going to find the parathyroids. Uh, in addition, you have to know where the recurrent laryngeal nerve is running, uh, and that also helps find the parathyroids. 
Uh, and then obviously uh, the, uh, the vessels of the neck, so the carotid artery is what I use uh, as a landmark as well for the first time of parathyroid. So, so, so two, two things I'll say. The first is that parathyroid um, uh, glands, uh, people call them upper and lower or superior and inferior. But in fact, uh, the, the anatomical uh, uh, landmark for parathyroid uh, glands uh, comes from uh, the development of parathyroid tissue, uh, which is um, uh, in, uh, in, in the fetal development. And uh, they come from the third and fourth branchial clefts. And the fourth branchial cleft and the third branchial cleft actually um, uh, flip uh, uh, as they're descending down into the place where they're going to be in the lower neck. And the fourth branchial cleft travels uh, with, the, um, uh, with the superior parathyroid gland and the third brachial cleft travels with the inferior parathyroid gland and the thymus. And so when they come down uh, into the neck, the superior parathyroid gland from the fourth, uh, or the inferior parathyroid gland from the third brachial cleft actually flips and goes in front of the third and goes uh, and basically forms the, uh, the thyrothymic ligament and the thymus. And so that's where you're going to find the inferior parathyroid gland, just in the inferior aspect of the thyroid and in the top of the thymus. The superior parathyroid gland flips, as I said, behind the uh, the third branchial cleft. So the fourth the fourth branchial cleft, which is containing the uh, the upper uh, gland, flips behind the third uh, branchial cleft and forms the superior parathyroid gland in the posterior aspect of the neck. So to make a long story short, the superior parathyroid gland is actually the posterior parathyroid gland, and the inferior parathyroid gland is actually the anterior parathyroid gland. And that's the best, in my opinion, that's the best way uh, to find these parathyroid glands. And so if you're looking at the thyroid, you're looking at the recurrent laryngeal nerve, and you look behind, posterior to the recurrent nerve, posterior to the thyroid gland, uh, you're going to find the superior parathyroid gland. And if you look anterior, anterior to the nerve in the thyrothymic ligament, you're usually going to find the inferior parathyroid gland. And that's how I kind of uh, decide uh, at least where to start looking. Can you walk us through a little bit about... Um... Uh, how you approach this operation? Let's say uh, if you were going to do a classic four gland exploration. So, um, so I think maybe you're you're talking about like technology and stuff that I use in the operating room. Um, so I um, uh, I think that uh, you know we have technology available if your uh, if your health system uh, can afford it. Um, I think you should be using uh, the technology that you have. You know, I, I I'm a laparoscopic surgeon as well as as well as you are, and uh, you know we. We use laparoscopy um, as a as a second nature, and we don't think twice about using uh, you know energy devices for laparoscopy. Uh, and I think energy devices is a very um, effective tool in especially uh, uh, either foregland or even um, a localized parathyroid disease uh, because it allows you to make small incisions. It allows you to have direct uh, a, a direct view of what you're doing, and you don't have to worry about you know, ties coming off and these types of things. So I use a, I use a, 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 a advanced energy device for all my cases, uh, if I can, you know, if, if, the, if the hospital I'm working at can't afford it, then I obviously won't, won't use it, but if I can. And they also use a nerve monitor as much as I can. The reason why I use a nerve monitor is not so that I can kind of truffle find the nerve, which is what a lot of the, uh, uh, a lot of the surgeons um, uh, in many different specialties, uh, uh, the argument they use to not using a nerve monitor because it's almost like a bravado thing. Like, oh, I can use, I can, I don't need a nerve monitor to operate. I mean, I think that's that's that 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 argument is, you know, maybe ten years ago. Uh, I think I use a nerve monitor. Uh, I, I know I use a nerve monitor because it helps um, 
with, because I do, I, I do all my cases I do with learners, it helps uh, learners understand the relationship of where they are to the nerve at all times. That's the first reason. And so I always, whenever I'm, whenever I'm, at, I'm getting the learners to make a move, I always uh, have them show me where they think the nerve is and then uh, where they, where, where the dissection plane is going to be. And that actually helps them a lot in trying to understand how to do a safe move uh, around the recurrent lingual nerve. Because as you know, that's the, the main, uh, the main uh, difference between, uh, you know, just, just plucking something out and in, uh, in uh, something somewhere else in the body and, and being in the neck. Um, so I do use uh, I do use a, a nerve monitor, and the second reason why I use a nerve monitor is that it helps uh, you know understand um, if we have any stretch uh, in the nerve, and especially for when you're doing a total thyroidectomy or a, or a foregland exploration, you know that if you have any nerve signal problem on one side, you don't really want to go to the other side unless you uh, you have um, uh, you've waited. Uh, usually, you wait until uh, until you have a nerve signal come back or that the vocal cord is moving. Uh, and that prevents any uh, ever having theoretically ever having a bilateral nerve injury, even temporarily, which sometimes requires tracheostomy. So, so that those are the reasons why I use nerve monitor, and I use I try to use nerve monitor as much as I can. Uh, and and so and so that's how I kind of set up with my technology um, to to approach thyroids and parathyroids. Um, in terms of uh, the actual approach to the operation, uh, you know, I usually do a uh, a focused parathyroidectomy, even in patients that. Uh, that may have foregland disease. Um, I, at least I'll start off with it, and then I'll move to a foregland exploration if needed. So, so I think I think that you know you have to have a good um, a good approach for your uh, for your operation. But uh, you know I try to standardize my operation. That's really key for I think all the endocrine surgeons I've ever worked with were very uh, you know bent on on standardization of their operation, and I think that that takes out all the variables because there's so many variables that can happen when you're doing functional surgery. Uh, that you try to minimize any of the variables that you can, and that gives you the best outcomes I think possible. Can you now just walk us through a foregland exploration, you know, starting from the beginning and, and, and walking us all the way through it and what sort of what are the steps and, and key, key maneuvers uh, during the operation? Sure. So, so uh, I guess foregland exploration, what you do is you, be, you know, you'd make your incision in your neck, uh, you'd make your subplatysmal flaps. Um, uh, you'd uh, you know split the strap muscles uh, in the midline. Uh, and um, just uh, I, I know I, I'm digressing, but as a side note, I actually do a focused minimal invasive parathyroidectomy using a lateral approach. Sometimes that's not uh, that's you wouldn't do that for a foregland expiration. So so in this situation, you'd uh, you split the strap muscles in the midline, uh, and um, and you'd start on one side. You'd pick a side, um, uh, you know whatever you're more comfortable with. Um, uh, or least comfortable with. There was a surgeon uh, that I worked with that always started on the right side, uh, never started on the left, always started on the right. Even in thyroid cancer patients, he'd, he'd, and he'd doing a total thyroidectomy, he'd always, and the thyroid cancer was on the left, he'd still start on the right because he was more comfortable with the right. So I think you have your own, again, standardization, you have your own, uh, your own way of doing it. Uh, and then it started on one side. So let's say you started on the right, you'd, um, you'd try to, I usually try to find the inferior gland first because that's what usually pops out first in the thyrothymic ligament. I'd inspect that uh, and then see what it looked like. I'd, all, I'd then uh, look to the uh, right upper gland, uh, again, medializing the thyroid gland uh, um, uh, away from the carotid artery so you can see posterior to the thyroid gland. Uh, again, you'd have, to take, you'd have to make sure the strap muscles were separated from the thyroid gland uh, before you could do that. 
uh, and then uh, and then visualize the superior parathyroid gland. And I sometimes put a little clip on it just uh, just so it's easy for me to find when I come back because I've been I'm going to do I plan to do a four gland, so I'm going to come back to them. And then I'd go to the other side, take the strap muscles off uh, the thyroid gland again, uh, look at the inferior parathyroid gland the same way I looked at the other side, um, review it. Is it big? Is it small? Uh, maybe put a clip on it, uh, um, and then look at the superior part of the parathyroid gland again, uh, medializing the thyroid gland away from the carotid artery, uh, away from the uh, trachea, so you can see posterior to the uh, thyroid gland, and review the parathyroid as well. I always find the recurrent regional nerve as well, um, at least know where it's where it's coursing. Uh, again, it's going to course anterior to the superior parathyroid gland and posterior to the inferior parathyroid gland. Uh, and then, um, and then uh, I would put a clip on it. If, if I thought one of the big glands was on the other side, I would go back to the other side, take the big gland out. Uh, if I thought it was multi-gland disease, then I would take usually three glands out, uh, maybe three and a half if the last gland was quite big. But I would make sure that there was good um, vascularization to the remaining part of the gland. So if I was going to do a three and a half gland exploration, uh, or sorry, three and a half gland excision, I would do the half gland excision first, and then I would start taking the other glands out. And every gland I took out, I look back to that first half gland excision to make sure it was still uh, uh, viable. Uh, because if it wasn't viable, then it would just become another full excision gland. Um, I almost never do a total parathyroidectomy and auto transplantation. I think that that's really not, um, it's not needed uh, in most patients. Um, uh, and, uh, and the problem with doing that is that they have four to six weeks waiting for that auto transplanted parathyroid gland to come back online. And when I say tr auto transplanting the parathyroid gland, we basically take that, uh, remaining parathyroid gland. We usually take 30 to 40 milligrams of parathyroid tissue, which is the normal size of a parathyroid gland. And we morselate it and put it back into a, a highly vascularized muscle, like the sternocleidomastoid into a pocket. I usually don't do that if at all possible, because if you took out all the parathyroid glands and, and just auto transplanted 40 milligrams of parathyroid tissue, you'd have a four to six week period of zero parathyroid tissue functioning until that auto transplanted gland started working. And in that period of time, patients are miserable and it's dangerous. Uh, it's frankly, it's dangerous to patients uh, because they either have profoundly low levels of calcium or they get over, uh, uh, over, um, uh, supplemented and their calcium uh, goes too high. So I think those patients are very, very high risk. And I try never to have that. The only patients that will sometimes have that situation are patients that have, um, that have renal disease and they've, they've, they've had recurrence of their, uh, of their disease after already a subtotal parathyroidectomy. But in primary disease, I almost never try to have uh, an autotransplanted uh, parathyroid gland, uh, if at all possible. I did want to just go back one more time to the tips and tricks for finding these glands, particularly if you're, you know, a favorite Royal College question is about these ectopic versus supernumerary glands. Um, so let's say you're, if you're if you're having trouble finding uh, the gland, what are your sort of steps and maneuvers for um, trying to find a, um, a gland that may be in an ectopic position? And how do you differentiate between an ectopic versus a supernumerary gland? 
Um, so I think, uh, you know, if you can't find a gland, first of all, for all the, for all surgeons that are, you know, starting uh, in practice and wanting to do parathyroidism, that's awesome. And you can call me anytime if you have questions or even interoperatively, but I've had, I've had, you know, my previous residents or even some colleagues call me, you know, say, you know, I can, I'm looking here, I can't find the parathyroid gland. I think it really just helps to have somebody around that knows um, that knows the struggle because, you know, even as a high volume parathyroid surgeon, I do hundreds of these parathyroid operations a year. I obviously still also have trouble finding parathyroid glands sometimes. And, and that's just because, uh, as I said, the nature of development of parathyroid uh, glands, they just, they just don't always go in the same place every time. And so, uh, and so the, the, as long as you have an algorithm in your mind of what you're going to do, you can stay calm and you can kind of, kind of get through the operation um, and usually it'll pop up uh, the place that you're that you're that you have in your mind to look. So, so let's uh, let's just take um, the gland. So let's say you can't find the inferior parathyroid gland, and you um, uh, and you uh, you've uh, you've localized it actually to that area, and uh, you know you uh, you don't um, you you you've seen the other gland on that. Let's say you saw the parath this, the superior parathyroid gland on that side, and it looks normal. And you're pretty confident this is a single gland disease and it's the inferior gland. So I think in that situation, uh, you can think back to how this parathyroid gland is formed. And so the parathyroid gland comes, as I said, with the thymus. And so I would pull up the thymus. It's usually in the thymus. Um, I've had uh, parathyroid glands deep, deep down in the thymus and I pulled it up and just at the, and I just like, I'm not, it's not here. It's not here. I'm pulling up and right at the end, you have this big parathyroid gland pop out. So I've had that happen a few times. Uh, so in the thymus is a really key place to look. And other places in the thyroid, especially if it's an inferior parathyroid gland, sometimes you have these intrathyroidal uh, parathyroids. The superior parathyroid gland can also be in the thyroid. So uh, if, you're, if you can't find a one parathyroid gland and you found the other ones, especially if you did a foregland expiration, I would just uh, take out that side of the thyroid. And I've had many parathyroid glands, up to 5% of parathyroid glands are in the thyroid. So I, I, can, I, I just take out the thyroid in that one side. Um, where else can you find the, the parathyroid glands? If you, if you can't find the superparathyroid gland, you can often look in the, uh, make sure you uh, trace the recurrent nerve and the tracheoesophageal groove because uh, it's often hiding in there or retroesophageal. Sometimes you can find them right behind the esophagus. Uh, and then they can also uh, lie in the um, in the carotid sheath. I've, I've pulled a couple out of the carotid sheath before. So I think that if you kind of really understand your neck anatomy uh, and uh, and what the, the critical structure of the neck is, you could clear out uh, the area and try to find the the parathyroid, uh, the quote unquote ectopic or supernumerary uh, parathyroid glands uh, in uh, these uh, these abnormal locations um, uh, fairly uh, fairly well. Uh, sometimes you won't be able to find it, uh, and and that that is something that we live with, uh, and that is something that we can't we we can't control, um, especially if you're high volume parathyroid surgeon. And that the reason why that happens often is that it's deep down in the chest, and you can't actually pull it up. And uh, I go back to that uh, story of Charles Martel who had that multiple operations for parathyroid disease, it took, I think, seven, I don't remember exactly, seven or seven or eight parathyroid surgeries to find his parathyroid gland. And it was actually, they had to split his chest and it was actually in the, beside the pericardium. So, so parathyroid glands can be places that are not in the neck and, and then you won't find it in a foregland exploration. And, uh, and that's, why, um, that's why these are very difficult surgeries sometimes and so, sometimes very frustrating. So, so I think we need to you know, be cognizant that, we, that there are uh, non, 
traditional places for parathyroid glands. We have to have an algorithm, what to do, look at all the places, take out the thyroid on that side if needed, uh, pull up the thymus, uh, look, at, look behind the, uh, the esophagus and around the tracheosophageal groove, uh, look at the carotid sheath. Um, uh, but, but as long as you're not causing harm and you're able to, uh, to review those areas, uh, and you can't find it still, then likely it's, it's not in the neck and, uh, and, uh, then we'll have to, you know, close the patient up and, uh, and, f uh, figure out, uh, our next steps in terms of, um, uh, how to treat this patient. The last question I wanted to ask you about, uh, parathyroid disease, and this has been a fantastic overview, um, is sort of, uh, defining what recurrent versus persistent disease is and how you approach both those issues. So uh, persistent disease is very, uh, very clear. The calcium never drops. And that's, uh, that happens uh, at a variable rate, depending on the, uh, the volume of the parathyroid surgeon, depending on what kind of surgery they did. Did they do a focused, did they a focused parathyroidectomy with no intraoperative PTH? Did they do a foreglen expiration? Uh, did the patient have familial disease? The, these are all kind of uh, questions uh, which give you, uh, you know, if you tell me these, this is what happened, I can give you a, a rate of a higher or lower risk of, of persistent disease. Uh, but, but persistent disease is when the calcium doesn't drop. Recurrent disease is when the, when the calcium drops uh, and then it kind of goes back high sometime in the future. And this happens uh, very often in familial patients, uh, specifically in MEN1 patients. And uh, MEN1 patients, and I'll talk about that for a second because you talk about uh, recurrent disease. This is a classic problem that we as endocrine surgeons face with MEN1 patients. And, and this illustrates the whole idea behind a recurrent uh, disease. So uh, MEN1, uh, as, you, as you know, is, is, a, is a disease of all the four parathyroid glands. And, and so what we try to do at the time of the operation is, is take out enough parathyroid tissue that their calcium will drop and their calcium will drop for the longest possible time before it will recur because the parathyroid glands are abnormal. And so even if you leave a little bit, they will become hyperplastic over time and they will get worse and worse, or they're already hyperplastic, but they'll get worsening hyperplastic hyperplasia over time and they'll continue to increase the calcium level. And so what I, what I, what I try to talk to, to patients about is that you really want to do a parathyroid surgery on those patients at the last possible moment before they have complications from their parathyroid disease and you want to do as minimal operation as possible, which will be as robust or as long, uh, will, will help them as long-term as possible. And there's many different approaches now to MEN1 patients, but I think those patients, it's really important to factor in two things. Number one, how long is it going to be before they need a reoperation? And number two, what is the risk of the reoperation in terms of going into a scarred neck to try to find a small but overactive parathyroid gland? And that is, that is something that the endocrine surgeon or any surgeon that's doing this operation should think of before they even do their first operation on this patient. And, uh, and that's something that, uh, that I think uh, is another reason why we've used, we like to have algorithms and we like to have a plan way, way ahead in advance for the second and third and fourth complica complicated operation that these patients are going to have. I wanted to, to sort of close on, on one additional concept and, and approach and um, you know, obviously it's the, it's the transoral methodology for, for thyroid surgery to a lot of us that, that don't, uh, uh, live in that world. It's, it's mind blowing quite honestly. So I'm curious, number one, if you could just describe for our audience that technique, uh, very broadly, and then, and then secondarily, maybe, uh, what the indications for it, for it are, where it fits. And then I'm curious in particular, I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about 
the introduction of these new and sometimes quite radical introductions uh, or, or technologies, I should say, into surgery. Yeah, so uh, I, I, I really appreciate the question. That's a big, uh, an area that I'm very uh, passionate about. I mean, so first of all, transoral thyroidectomy, people even hear that and they say, what are you even thinking? Like, why would you even come close to thinking about something like that? Like, that is insane. Um, and it, to tell you the truth, I actually thought it was insane myself when I first heard about it during residency. And uh, the first, uh, basically what, the, what it involves is, uh, uh, is taking the thyroid out through the, through the mouth. Uh, and just as a, to put in perspective, there's been multiple different um, uh, groups of surgeons around the world that have tried to do uh, uh, a minimal invasive um, uh, approach to uh, thyroid or parathyroid surgery without actually making an incision in the neck. And this comes from the whole idea of laparoscopy. So we, you know, we used to make a big incision in the abdomen and we took whatever we had to take out. Uh, and then uh, over the course of years, in the last kind of 20 years, we've started to say that we can actually do this uh, with cameras. And, and I think um, it, it takes thinkers, uh, you know, outside the box thinkers to try to understand uh, that we can, uh, we can use our understanding of anatomy and tissue planes uh, to try and approach the organs that we're taking out in a different way, um, which number one may uh, you know um, obviate the need for a scar, but 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 secondarily, in, in my opinion, more importantly, the view uh, from a laparoscopic approach, uh, as as anyone that does any laparoscopic surgery knows, is way way better in almost every circumstance than uh, having an open approach, even if you're using loops. And so, uh, so the the whole idea behind uh, you know this kind of uh, surgical uh, the surgical approach to thyroids and parathyroids uh, you know started um, started from from thinkers like that. In addition, uh, in East in East Asia, especially in, in Korea, there's a there's a big stigma about having a, a neck incision. And so there was a lot of innovation on uh, trying to do um, kind of remote access. Uh, thyroid surgery uh, there. Uh, they use the robot a lot as well in the, in Korea, and they they um, started something called the BABA approach, which was uh, which was taking out the thyroid through incisions in the areolar area around in the breast uh, and in the axilla. So they actually make incisions in the axilla and around the areola, and they actually tunnel under the platysma and take the thyroid out that way. And that uh, has gained popularity and it's still going on quite uh, quite extensively uh, in uh, in Korea and East Asia. Uh, and then um, the, um, the initially was actually Eastern, Eastern Europeans, but uh, then it was popularized and actually developed to what it is now uh, by a, a surgeon uh, in, um, uh, in, uh, in Thailand, in Bangkok, named Ankun Anuang. And I went to go learn this operation from him. And he, he started this operation where you make small incisions just, uh, just um, between the lip, where the lip meets the teeth, uh, three, uh, three laparoscopic ports. And you tunnel underneath the platysma, uh, and you take the uh, the thyroid gland out uh, that way. Uh, you actually have an amazing view of the thyroid. Uh, in fact, uh, um, the use a little bit of air. You can uh, use a small um, uh, suture to suture up the uh, strap muscles, uh, and you review the thyroid gland, and you can see the parathyroid glands exceptionally well. You can even use intraoperative ICG to view the view the. Uh, the parathyroid glands uh, even easier. Um, you can uh, review the recurrent original nerve very easily. You can use a nerve monitor as well in the laparoscopic approach. So I think um, so. I think all the and his and his operations done flawlessly. I, I went to go uh, as I said, learn from him, 
and uh, and it's he his his uh, his approach his his protocol uh, his his uh, his outcomes are 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 really uh, amazing. They're the, they're the same. They're basically his outcomes are the same as as most high volume uh, uh, surgeons have through the through the center of the neck. So so I think you know the the approach uh, is uh, is 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 feasible. It's safe. Um, it's effective. And even for teaching purposes, it's actually uh, way better. Uh, for any of you that have that have been like the second or third assist in a uh, in a thyroid surgery, you know you, you're not seeing really anything. Uh, you have multiple heads in there, and you can't really see what's going on. Um, uh, and uh, you know it's the same like when I was uh, you know a resident and I was the uh, St. Mark's guy in a, in a rectal ca uh, rectal case. You know you're not seeing anything. And when when laparoscopic uh, uh, rectal surgery came along. Uh, you know, I started being able to visualize everything. So, so I think it's a similar kind of idea, uh, and um, and it's really an amazing uh, an amazing view that you have. Um, you know, uh, I think it, it really comes with uh, with people that are passionate about innovation. You're going to have really adopters, uh, as you know, for any type of new technology or new approach. Um, and then it's going to take some time for the new, the early adopters to popularize it. And then once it's popularized, then you have to start teaching people how to do it. Uh, in the masses, uh, and that's something that I'm trying to do. You know, we started a new fellowship program in endocrine surgery in Toronto. So, uh, and I'm doing transoral uh, thyroidectomy. So, hopefully, the endocrine surgery, surgical fellow will uh, will uh, take those skills to wherever they they practice. And and I think that's that's kind of the idea of trying to train uh, the next generation in the new technology. Uh, and you're still going to have people that say, you know, that's insane. Uh, how could you ever think about that? But you had the same people saying that uh, for laparoscopic cholecystectomy. So that doesn't deter me at all. <laughs>